Hello. Hello, my name is the Reverend Lori Anzalotti. I have the deep pleasure of serving as the Assistant Rector at Holy Communion. Today for our first Bible 101 in the new season, uh, the new programming season, we'll be looking at the book of Job. I hope that you'll listen. Uh, I'll have some pauses during this time where I'll ask some wondering questions and just hold silence for a bit for you to soak in what's been said and to think about what your own answer might be as you go for a walk or wash the dishes or do the laundry while you listen. And I hope that you'll join us on Sunday at 1130 for our virtual coffee hour as we discuss together uh, the ideas presented here and your experience and response to it. Let's get started. So, the book of Job. Why Job? <laughs> I'll tell you why. It can kind of be summed up in a joke that my husband um, shares a lot. This is his favorite joke of the season. It goes like this. A man walks into a bar. He orders a Corona beer and two hurricanes. The bartender says, that'll be 2020. Yeah, it's not that good of a joke, but it's very true that this year, 2020, has brought so many challenges. The pandemic, multiple hurricanes, fires, not just in California, but throughout the West with smoke that stretches to the East Coast. Chaos and violence in our streets in response to deep pain of systemic injustice. It's a lot. Our headlines seem to ask the question, why is all of this happening now? In fact, I've heard that question from a lot of people and most often and most notably and most clearly from my 14-year-old daughter, Catherine, who says, Mom, why is God letting this happen? Why? Well, there's one book in the Bible that particularly deals with this question. In fancy theological talk, we call it theodicy, the problem of evil. Why do good things happen, no, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? How can this be? How can it be? This is the central question of the book of Job. It's why I chose it for today, because it seems so particularly relevant to what we are all living in 2020. Let me tell you about the story of Job, for those of you who don't know it. And for those of you who do, I mean, it's such a great story. It can just be told over and over again. Job is awesome. That's how the book starts out. He's just a great guy. He has a very successful life. Great wives, lots of healthy children, tons of servants, land, animals, crops, all of which indicate a really successful life. 
But it's more than just the surface or the materiality. Job is known to be just, to be wise, to always have an eye out for the orphan, for the widow, the most vulnerable. He's justly rewarded by God, people think. He lives such a good life. His material success is just the what God pays to him for his goodness and his faithfulness. It's this setting that Satan comes into. Now, we're not talking about the devil that we think of, but Satan who in chapter 1, verse 7, is described as God's messenger who's roaming and patrolling the earth for God. Satan and God have a conversation in which Satan convinces God to test Job by taking away all that he has and seeing whether then Job might not be unfaithful, might not have a bad word to say about God. But Job doesn't. His children die, his lands are taken, his livestock develops pestilence, everything is gone. He literally has nothing left. And Job doesn't say a word against God. So Satan convinces God to permit a second test. But this time, Satan has convinced God to inflict pain to Job's body. We have a picture in the beginning of the book of Job sitting next to a dung heap at the outskirts of town with sores covering his body, scabs and bugs everywhere. And still, Job says nothing bad about God. It's in this setting that four friends come to visit Job. And when they arrive, they're so overwhelmed by Job's plight that for seven days and nights, they fast and sit in silence. They're just ministry of presence, keeping him company in awe of his loss and degradation. But then they just can't help themselves. And they start to talk. They uh, start to talk, and they've got ideas about why this is happening to Job. They know the rules that God works by, and the rules have something to say about Job. Now keep in mind that as Job's friends begin to detail God's rules, What's happening? They know nothing about the conversation between Satan and God. So they think they know the mind of God, and they don't even know the backstory. In the minds of all of Job's friends, God rules in a reasoned way that's based on a theory of retribution. Eliphaz, one of the friends, articulates the overarching concept of this theory of retribution when he says to Job, let's see, this is chapter four, verse seven through nine. Eliphaz said, Job, reflect now. What innocent person perishes? Since when are the upright destroyed? As I see it, those who plow for mischief and sow trouble reap the same mischief and trouble. 
By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of wrath they are consumed. So good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. That's the theory of justice and retribution that these friends work under. Another man, Zophar, comments, if you removed all your inequity from your conduct, surely then you would be innocent and could lift your face. Each friend in 35 excruciatingly long chapters, poor Job having to listen to all this, each friend asserts that God acts justly, rationally, and consistently in the world through the theory of retribution. So if Job appears to be virtuous, but is suffering, it means that Job has hidden sin. That Job would suffer, but be innocent, is an impossibility because it doesn't fit with their well-ordered understanding of God. Job, he rejects that. Time and time again, they keep saying, you look innocent, but you must not be because you're suffering. And he rejects that orthodox thinking of his friends over and over. He steadfastly refuses to declare himself guilty of sin. He notes, the wicked survive, grow old, and become mighty in power. This incongruity confuses Job. And throughout the book, he asks to talk to God, to reason with him. He begs for God to teach him about why this is happening. What is it, I wonder, in our moments of pain, confusion, when things seem incongruous to us, what is it that we call out to God for? What is it that we ask of God? It's completely ironic that throughout the book, Job's friends describe God as almighty, as superior to them, but they simultaneously claim to know God and to know his mind and workings. In their belief, they can understand the workings of God through reason. That means that they are ultimately making themselves God's equals. They also claim to know what justice is, they claim to know what justice is. In naming and establishing rules for the parameters of God's justice, they constrain God's power. They make the unknown God into a known. They take away his otherness. I wonder, are there ways that we constrain God? Are there ways that we take away God's otherness, like Job's friends?
readers move back and forth between Job speaking to declare innocence and his friends speaking to declare his unquestionable sinfulness and guilt until Job in chapter 28 reflects on mystery. Here begins the move into naming the unknowability of God as he explores, as Job explores the source of wisdom and asks, but where can wisdom be obtained? And where is the place of understanding? Man knows nothing equal to it, nor is it to be had in the land of the living. In Job's long-awaited response from God, which forms the heart of chapters 38 through 41, God unequivocally declares his power and otherness. Where were you, he asks, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, since you're so well informed. Ooh, that is one sarcastic God. He goes on to give multiple examples of his might through extremely beautiful and poetic language that we'll look at in a few minutes. God's primary question to Job and thus to us is, who is this obscuring my intentions with their ignorant words? With one question, Job wipes away all the speeches of Job's friends and all of their assertions of truth. Their words do nothing but obscure God's intentions, whose power they cannot contain with their reason. Job's response to God in chapter 42, I think, should be our own. We should be able to say to the divine, eternal one, I was the person who misrepresented your intentions with my ignorant words. You have told me about great works that I cannot understand and marvels which are beyond me of which I know nothing. In the cultural climate in which we live, where both left and right are as convicted of their theories as Job and his friends were about theirs, Job is a really relevant and critical reminder that God is wholly other, that God's truth is beyond our understanding this reminder of where truth resides calls us to continued conversation and relationship with those who hold differing views, knowing that ultimately it is only God who knows all. So we need to return to the main question, the one that we began with. Why do these bad things happen to good people? It's unknowable. The question itself implies, just asking the question implies that we can reason our way into knowing and understanding God. The question makes us like Job's friends. I want to share this book with you. Bill, ah, <laughs> Bill McKibben, The Comforting Whirlwind. Subtitle is God, Job, and the Scale of Creation. 
I'll provide a link to it below the video so you could check it out. It's a fabulous book, very short read, just about 70 pages. But in it, McKibben presents an important idea, which is that the small, the question that Job asks, why me, or that his friends ask, why me, the question that we are want to ask in our own lives, why is this happening, is actually a very small, very individualistic, and very anthropocentric, person-centered question. And what the book of Job does is give us the whole scale of creation in God's answer and point out how tiny and honestly insignificant our question actually is. You see, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind from the center of a hurricane. <laughs> Out of the whirlwind, he speaks. Gustavo Gutierrez, best known as a liberation theologian, but he also wrote a book on Job. Gutierrez says that the God of the whirlwind doesn't even address Job's question. He never says, oh, Job, all right, here's the deal. Satan came to me and he asked, and I let him do all that stuff to your family, and now came back and that's why you got the boils and the pestilence and he never answers the question. Instead, he uses unbelievably beautiful and poetic language to describe the scale of creation. Stephen Mitchell, um, who is a poet and a translator, has translated the book of Job. I'll include a link to that book as well. I just purchased it myself. I'm really excited about it because it's the only translation of Job that uses poetry the way the actual Hebrew is written. It's a poetic book and translates it as poetry, not as prose. So um, Stephen Miller's uh, translation of Job. And... Um, in that translation, the, po the poetry itself indicates, the medium communicates the message. The friends are operating all out of logic, but God's language is out of artistic creativity, out of a, an answer that comes out of emotion and beauty and language all wrapped into one neat package. Out of the whirlwind, God is describing a world without people, a world that existed long before people, a world that seems to have its own independent meaning outside of our questions of why. Here's some of the language that God uses. Where were you when I planned the earth? Tell me if you were so wise. Do you know who took its dimensions, measuring its length with a cord? What were its pillars built on? Who laid down its cornerstones? And he goes on to describe so many facets of creation, from ostriches and alligators to vultures. 
He says, do you teach the vulture to soar and build his nest in the clouds? He makes his home on the mountaintop, on the unapproachable crag. He sits and scans for prey. From far off, his eyes can spot it. His little ones drink its blood. Where the unburied are, he is. Job complains that the world makes no sense. And God responds by showing him little vultures drinking blood. This book helps us to understand our place within the scheme of creation. The book of Job helps us to understand our relationship to God. Our knowing and understanding of divine ways is not possible. And when we attempt to name them, to constrain them, we are actually constraining God. God is large. He is the universe. Poetic language of Job best encompasses that, the scale of all creation being presented to us makes Job's question seem small and egocentric. Holding on to these ideas of a bigger God who has a thinking, a logic, a way of being that defies our own experience, in which everything is knit together in one universal creation. I hope that those thoughts, the thoughts of Job, provide some way forward for you, some new thinking to the question, what is going on? in 2020. Why? Hope to see you on Sunday. Thanks for listening.